1: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today.
0: Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes and via the web. I'm Jyoti Raja, Research Professor at the American Bar Foundation. And today I'm talking with Nick Cheeseman, a fellow at the Department of Political and Social Change at the Australian National University, about his 2015 book, Opposing the Rule of Law, How Myanmar's Courts Make Law and Order, published by Cambridge University Press. Nick, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Jyothi. It's great to be on the other side of the mic.
0: You and I have, um, are talking on the sidelines of the Law and Society's annual, Law and Society Association's annual meeting held this year, at, um, in New Orleans. And there was a re- really lively discussion of your book at the Author Meets Reader session. And one of the things that was discussed, and I wonder if you'd like to start by talking about this, is the very striking cover of the book. This very striking image of a pair of raised, proud, defiant, handcuffed wrists with um, the insignia of a policeman's cap showing just below these wrists, and behind the wrists, a building which looks like it could well be colonial, but is definitely institutional in some way.
1: Thanks for beginning with the cover. The cover is important to me, and I apologize to podcast listeners who cannot see it, but it will be posted on the website. It's important to me because I did want to have a cover image that captured features of the book's contents that are important to the arguments contained therein and also to its empirical contents. For that purpose, I sought out a photographer based in Yangon and asked him to go out and take photographs. And for listeners who are familiar with the publishing process, you'll be aware that a lot of publishers prohibit the use of photographs that show faces of people clearly so that they're recognizable without authorization from those persons to be on the cover. Therefore the photographer had a bit of a challenge in trying to frame and take photographs that wouldn't include the face of somebody and yet would capture in some way the um, intellectual and emotional contents, I suppose, of the book. And I, I appreciate how much people have been drawn to this image of and uh, the raised hands of the person being taken into custody, clearly a criminal case where somebody is being detained after being brought forward to a court. The background is indeed an image of a colonial-era court building, which is still used as a court today. In fact, it's the Yangon Western District Court Building, which is right in the centre of downtown adjacent to the docks for anybody who's familiar with Yangon. You can see the wrought iron of the building there showing clearly its colonial origins, and those colonial origins are indeed a feature of the contents of the book, so that's one aspect of the book's contents which shows clearly in the image. Another feature of the image that I liked is the presence of the police officer behind the detained and it, on the cap of the police officer is the map of Myanmar in the insignia. So we also have here the symbolic presence of the state in the form of the police officer's badge.
0: Thank you. It is it is a very arresting cover, certainly, and um, for me it was it was something that I looked at Um, many times as I read through the book because, um, and I think this passage at page 11 of your book captures it where you write, and I quote, in a politically repressive setting, criminal cases are the representative mode of legal authority. In the exercise of control over the body of the accused, we find the basic elements for the exercise of control over the body politic. This this these few lines, um, the cover, and then the, the anecdote that you begin with in your acknowledgments when you talk about the time that you were working in Hong Kong and the apparently small moment that led you to this large project, led you to work on Myanmar at a time before it was trendy as it now is. I wondered if you would say a little bit more about that moment in Hong Kong.
1: Certainly. And before I do that, we should add that uh, the reference to the importance of criminal cases comes from work that was done earlier by Nonny and Selznick in Lawrence Society and Transition. So this is a point that they raised in their work, which I picked up and used in my own conversation that I think was important and highly relevant to my work because my work is uh, very much concerned with political questions of how the courts function in a politically repressive setting, uh, primarily with political rather than with legal questions, which is something that perhaps we can return to. As for the anecdotes or the story with which I begin the book, perhaps not so much an anecdote because it really was an important early moment in the pre-research process, the initial steps that led to the thinking that led to the research that led to the book. I was working in Hong Kong for the Asian Legal Resource Centre, the sister organisation of the Asian Human Rights Commission, and I went to, you know, I went to Thailand, I apologize, to meet with Burmese colleagues who were working in Thailand at that time as exiles. Many of them have now returned to Myanmar since the political changes began in 2010-2011. And while I was there, I met with Minlin Wu at the Burma Lawyers' Council office in Maesot. And Minlin and I were talking about the work that the Burma Lawyers' Council did and and still does and it's great and very important work focused on a range of institutional and structural issues around the uh, legal institutions in Myanmar. However one thing that wasn't very much a part of the work of the lawyers council was to concentrate on specific ordinary criminal cases so not the cases of the high profile political detainees uh, the big names those that were concerned with um, exceptional circumstances, but rather the ordinary and mundane criminal cases uh, through which we could build up, um, through which we could do two things. In fact, one was to advocate, of course, on the specific case, but the other was to build up a discussion with colleagues um, working abroad and also in Myanmar on the specific features of the criminal, juridical arrangements in, in Myanmar that were repressive, that uh, resulted in routine violations of human rights. And I discussed this with Ling U, and he said, hold on a moment, and went back inside the office. And when he came back, he had in his arms a sheaf of papers that was about a foot deep He placed them on the table and these were all transcripts of criminal cases that he'd been collecting over the last few years. And he looked at me and said, where do you want to begin? Uh. And, of course, I was a little bit taken aback. Uh, We can't start with everything and there was a huge amount of material sitting before me from a variety of different cases And I said to him, why don't we start with one case that's troubling you in particular and that you think we might make some progress both on that individual case and also on thinking about the institutional arrangements of the courts, the police, the prosecution in Myanmar. So he pulled out one case of a boy who had been imprisoned after throwing rocks at police officers, allegedly and i took the case back with me to hong kong and i wrote it up and we publicized it and shortly after that the radio stations contacted to mingling wu and his colleagues at that time the burmese language shortwave radio stations bbc VOA, rfa and the democratic voice of burma were the stations that really carried uh, the only independent Uh, freely and widely available information into the country. The radio stations picked up on the story and were able to contact to the family. The mother of the boy spoke very strongly and vigorously about the circumstances under which he'd been taken into custody and how much injustice had been done to him and to their family. And within a matter of days, a minister issued an order for release of the boy from detention. So I was a little bit surprised at that point as well. I was surprised in the first instance on seeing all of these cases that I hadn't expected could be collected so extensively and that we might have so many opportunities to work out of well-documented cases to engage in this type of uh, advocacy work. And secondly, I wasn't expect- expecting that the boy would be released so promptly after the intervention. It made me rethink uh, aspects of the criminal juridical institutions that we'd been talking about in a rather haphazard and perhaps not very well-informed way in Myanmar up to that time. And that was really the starting point for me in the progress towards the research. Of course, I spent a number of years still working in Hong Kong and working on many more cases cooperatively with Min Lin and other colleagues abroad and also in Myanmar. But at a certain point, I needed to uh, step out of that role and um, become a researcher in, in the sense of um, not being an advocate first and being a part-time researcher when I, I could fit it in but the other way around, uh, becoming primarily a researcher and then using the research still, hopefully, to advance advocacy and other activities, the sort that I've been involved in. And at that point, I began a PhD uh, program at the Australian National University where I'm now employed, having completed it.
0: Well, thank you for um, fleshing that out for us. I. I was struck when I read this and um, just as I kept going back to the cover I kept going back to the details of this as you say what should properly be called an early moment about the the role of the police the the fact that the person who was accused um, was in fact a teenager the role of his mother fearlessly speaking to the media the impact of media publicity, and then the power of the government minister to order his release. And this, these few lines that you wrote about capture all the powerful themes that you address. And um, I think for anyone who works on rule of law, indeed for anyone who works on the intersections of law and politics, your conceptual contribution to the field is the argument that you make about law and order as an analytic concept that stands in asymmetrical relation to rule of law. And I wondered if you might explain that for us.
1: Certainly. Thank you. The main argument that I make in the book, which emerges out of and in dialogue with the case study of Myanmar, is that rule of law is a political idea which is opposed to law and order. Law and order is a concept that ordinarily is conflated with the rule of law. If we look at a great deal of the work done by international agencies today, we find that it's usually incorporated into rule of law frameworks and a colleague of mine, Jeremy Farrell, has written an excellent book on UN sanctions and the rule of law in which in one of his chapters he identifies five common ways in which the rule of law is either defined or situated in close proximity with other concepts. And the law, law and order is one of those five categories that he identifies from the work that he did. But we need not even uh, go to that extent to see how the two terms are often deployed in close proximity with one another. In the work that you're doing on the World Justice uh, Project, we see also uh, in the indicators that they've devised a presence of indicators that speak to um, values uh, that I would identify with law and order rather than with the rule of law. So the basic distinction that I make is, from a a teleological perspective, the argument that I make is that whereas the rule of law is concerned primarily with non-arbitrariness, with tempering power, law and order is concerned primarily with quietitude, with a condition in which people are... Immobilized, in which they are made harmless for the political order that is already prevailing, and consequently, uh, these two losses seem to be at in oppositional relationships with one another. Now, I, the specific term that I use is asymmetrical opposition, and this notion of asymmetrical opposition comes from work by Gary and James Mahoney, in which they argue that rather than political scientists thinking simply about uh, political concepts being in opposition to one another because they occupy the opposite ends of um, a line of values, that we ought to think about them as having contents that are unlike but that are hostile to one another or that in some way or another oppose one another. So a simple example that they use, which I pick up on in the book, is that we can oppose war with peace, and we can oppose war with non-war, with a condition in which there's an absence of war. But non-war and peace are two very different things, can conceivably. That the non-war is a negative of war as a concept, whereas peace has its own contents. It has its own membership requirements. The necessary and sufficient conditions for peace are unlike those for non-war. So my argument is that law and order has an asymmetrical relationship with the rule of law because it opposes the rule of law by virtue of its different teleology. However, it's not the same thing as saying simply that there is an absence of the rule of law. And I arrived at that position out of the work that I did on Myanmar to return to the case study where one would hear people talking about the lack of rule of law in Myanmar, as we do in other countries that by the criteria set down by international organisations or the World Justice Project and others that use templates and adopt deductive approaches to the rule of law, um, we encounter them, them telling us that what we find is a is a condition of absence. And I wanted to speak back against that and say that, in fact, Well, having started out trying to do the work from that position, and I, I, I in fact, did write a paper uh, talking about the unrule of law in Myanmar, which is evidence of the fact that I began thinking in a similar way. Uh, Having started out that way, what I encountered more and more in the course of my research wasn't a condition of absences, but a condition of uh, presences. And I felt that those presences, the characteristics of the juridical institutions in Myanmar I was looking at em- empirically, as well as the their normative features, the norms, the values that animated those institutions were mobilising against the values and principles of the rule of law. And... Therefore, I tried to develop that juxtaposition throughout the case study through first through some historical outline and then subsequently through a discussion of a number of aspects of the criminal juridical institutions in Myanmar in the present day.
0: I found it invaluable the way you reviewed the literature, Foucault, on policing and the police state not not in the narrow sense that we understand the police as an institution today, but um, all the scholarship on the relationship between society and order and discipline and policing, I found that really invaluable. And the way in which you highlighted the different um, lexical items in Burmese and how you took seriously both this... um, both these lexical items and the meanings that inhered within them and then um, trace the unfolding through the colonial state onwards to the present into the conflation that um, we are now seeing. And I wondered if you might um, talk a little bit about how rule of law, law and order um, occurs differently in Burmese.
1: Thanks for that question. It's an important part of how I developed the conceptual arguments. The first chapter of the book has an excursus on language, and that's where I set out the basics of the relationship. You're right to point to some of the observations that Foucault made on law and order as one of the starting points for my thinking about how to use the Burmese lexicon both in order to engage productively with the conversation about what I encountered in Myanmar, but also to advance a larger argument about the conceptual relationship between law and order and the rule of law. Foucault argues that in a couple of pieces and talks that have since been published in English, that law and order is a hybridized monster, that the two terms shouldn't be bound together in the way that they are because order always refers to the state's specific order, whereas law refers to general rules and principles, um, which uh, has a, a different connotation from order. Now, I don't go into any great depth in trying to unpack Foucault's reading of the term, but I use it, I leverage off it in order to engage with this question in Burmese. And the first thing to note is that whereas in English, law and order and the rule of law are often readily conflated because we have the lexical overlap of law in both, the word for law and order in Burmese does not contain any reference to law at all. That term, Niemu uh, Bibiye, in fact connotes a condition of stillness and quietitude. In fact, when it's broken down into its root terms, it's uh, quite explicit and the image is quite a powerful one. So nin is um, a quiet, stillness. Wood is to be crouched, B is to press down, and bia is flattening. So there's nothing in that notion of law and order that refers to law. On the contrary, it is a condition in which uh, people are stilled, they are quietened, and that quietening doesn't take place simply as a result of their own behaviour, this is another point I make about the relationship between the two terms that I try to develop at a general level, that uh, not only is it the case that they are quietened, but they are quietened because of some kind of superordinate-subordinate relationship. Somebody is doing the quietening. Somebody is taking responsibility to ensure that others are stilled. And so I argue that one feature of law and order Uh, by looking at the Burmese case, but I advance a more general argument uh, along these lines, is that um, whereas for the rule of law, discipline is an endogenous feature, it emerges out of the political relationships that people have when they treat one another as political equals, law and order, in fact, necessitates um, an exogenous imposition of discipline and therefore it implies that there's an unequal political relationship. Some people are superior to others. This is one key distinction that I make working with that uh, lexical and differentiation the two terms. Very briefly, the rule of law in Burmese is, is there are a number of terms that are used for it that are closely associated with one another. The term I refer to in the book is the Ubudesh It's in one sense, it is a translation of the English term. However, I think it's a useful and powerful one. And one of the reasons that I think so is again, if we go to the roots in this term, we find two terms that are derived from Pali, Sanskrit, Indic origins Diya. is the equivalent of Dharma. So that refers to uh, natural order, to the law of nature, whereas Ubide is from Ubidesa, It's a term that refers essentially to positive law or statutory law. So we have a clear linkage between the two categories, two uh, forms that law may take here, and somoye is rule. Uh, Consequently, the notion of the rule of law as dia ubede somoye is such that the kind of positive law that we find predominating in Myanmar today as a result of the Benthamite projects that I refer to in one chapter of the book uh, is not really compatible with the notion of Diyar somoye because it's still absent of this condition of the Dharma, natural law. And that term... In some ways, anchors the concept of the rule of law very powerfully with the notion of justice, um, which also uses that root term in Burmese. So uh, that's the basic. Fe- those are the basic features of the, the lexical distinction that I draw upon. Now, the additional point that I would like to make is that um, what I try to do throughout the book is track how, although that Distinction is very sharp lexically. Curiously, what has happened in Myanmar is that the two terms nevertheless have become conflated semantically. Specifically, that uh, law and order, Niemu Bibiaye, has occupied the place of Dia Ubudesh Omoye, the rule of law. And I track that, I track the tension between the two over different periods and then the occupation of the rule of law by law and order in the period of military rule from 1962 onwards. And the point that I try to make is that whereas that lexical conflation, that slippage occurs relatively and easily in English, for the reason I mentioned already, it's much harder to do it in Burmese. And so uh, the fact that uh, successive military-led governments in Myanmar have succeeded in some way, at least, in conflating these terms, speaks powerfully to some of the phenomena I study in the case of Myanmar.
0: Thank you. Um, As I was reading it, and I really valued the way you situated your analysis in the colonial history, not just in the language but in the colonial history, and um, I... I didn't know about the Pannonian, and when you explained, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that word correctly, as, as this expression of the Benthamite Project, and you talked about how the code numbers for the penal code enter everyday conversation in Myanmar. Um, and to me, that was so striking that there was such a familiarity with law, this, this aspect of law, law's regulatory um controlling, you know, it, it's, its governmentality in so many ways that people use it in everyday conversation um, and that um, the number of a code is is completely understood. Um, and I wondered if you'd like to say more about that.
1: Thanks for bringing up the phenomenon. I, I also must admit that I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, Jody. In fact, I've only seen it in writing. The panopticon, of course, was made famous by Foucault um, by drawing on the uh, I was going to say concept, but Foucault uses the panopticon as a concept, but of course for Jeremy Bentham, the originator of the panopticon, it wasn't a concept, it was a design for a correctional facility that would be both more efficient and more humane, keeping in mind that Bentham was a humanist of his time uh, in in, um, designing a new kind of institution that would make... um, The business of corrections, uh, not only more humane, but also uh, engage with the creation of a new kind of society, one informed uh, by uh, scientific principles, which is very much uh, what uh, Bentham was concerned with throughout much of his writing. So the the Panomian is um, in parallel with the Panopticon, another feature of the work that Jeremy Bentham Undertook in trying to design a scientific system of jurisprudence that would enable the better organisation of society. Uh, for those uh, listeners who are familiar with Bentham, they'll be aware that he had a very negative attitude towards the customary law and the common law. He thought that it was um, had extremely detrimental and negative consequences. And his special interest was in developing jurisprudence that might eventually take over the common law everywhere. So when he was talking and thinking about the phenomenon, it wasn't particularly directed towards colonies like Burma or India. However, the people who took on Bentham's ideas, some of them were... uh, very much followers of his, people like James Mill, the father of J.S. Mill. Uh, others were wouldn't class themselves as followers, but nevertheless they were sympathetic to aspects of his work. Uh, Thomas Macaulay, a Whig, nevertheless was one of those. These people uh, came to India with a view that, well if it wasn't possible to get these things happening in the metropole, then at least it might be possible to experiment with some of the designs and ideas of Bentham and other contemporaries in a colony where the subjects didn't have any say in the matter. And therefore, and I will be returning to Burma shortly, but we need to begin the discussion of history with India, Therefore, the design for a panomian refers to the program for writing of codified law, beginning with a penal code, but then a number of other codes that would be produced that together would serve to uh, prescribe all possible offenses and penalties that could be conceived of for the purposes of the colony. And one of the ideas that lay behind this, consistent with Bentham's own work, was that there really was no need for a professional judiciary. If you could write codified law sufficiently well, then all you required was a good administrator, a man, of course, with a, with a, a good frame of mind, a good understanding of the contents of some books in front of him, and with those books alone, he would be able to decide on everything. So we see here this enormous arrogance that uh, in this notion of, uh, of a universal jurisprudence that through a few codes, and some enlightened men, uh, everything would be illuminated. There wouldn't be any zones of darkness, any zones of confusion left. Uh, everything, all problems could be solved, and th- th- any social and political difficulties that one might encounter could be addressed. Well, the phenomenon was never realised. Not Certainly not the way that Bentham would see it. The penal code in its first draft... Uh, is perhaps the closest that any statute came in India to representing Bentham's ideas. And the Indian Penal Code, when it was finally passed, underwent revisions from that draft. But nevertheless, it is quite faithful in many of its um, features, in its design, and in many of its contents to the ideas that the Benthamites had at the time. The Criminal Procedure Code, less so, the Evidence Act somewhat more so because it was written by really the last great authoritarian Benthamite, Sir James, FitzJames Stephen. And together, these instruments have passed through time and successive generations and successive periods of political activity throughout South Asia, but also in Burma up to the present day. And they were brought into Burma on the back of uh, an invasion of the territory of Upper Burma in 1885, and here I'm referring to Burma, indicating the the period of which I'm speaking about. That was the term that the British adopted. And really, without any modification at all, magistrates, district officers and others in the newly colonised areas, with the exception of frontier areas that remained under different sets of regulations, were instructed to uh, apply the contents of the codes to Burma. And that's consistent with the principles that Bentham was working with himself in. because this is universal jurisprudence. It should work just as well for Burma as it would for Bengal, as it would for Britain itself, were it ever have been introduced there. And consequently, when one does work on criminal cases, whether it's in Burma or India today, it's hard not to be struck by the degree to which these codes continue to play such a central part, not only in the day-to-day activities around cases, but also in the legal imaginings or whatever form the imaginings take around these uh, cases. So one does find, as I mentioned in the book, and you've alluded to, um, people being interviewed on radio, whether they are lawyers or police or informed others, who constantly talk with reference to numbers in codes and sometimes offer explanations as to what they mean. And in this respect, we find parallels between Burma and um, South Asia. So Akil Gupta, for instance, in his work, "A Red tape and the Blurred Boundaries article makes precisely the same points. And in conversations I've had with colleagues from places like Pakistan, I've been struck by how many... Uh, resonances. I, I, they um, identify in the practices and the language of law and criminal law in the places that they're working, um, as well as in Burma. So that's all by way of saying that in, in this respect, we see a strong level of continuity uh, in the case of Burma, um, subsequently Myanmar, Whereas in other respects, we see very significant discontinuities. So in con- contrast to South Asian cases, a completely, um, the complete destruction of the institutional arrangements of the colonial judiciary after 1962, also the police force and other agencies were entirely reorganized. And yet the codes remain as this backbone of the criminal juridical apparatus and with profound effects for the lives of uh, anyone who comes into contact with these institutions or with the effects of these institutions in Burma as throughout South Asia.
0: And indeed the useful thing that you highlight for us in tracing the Pannonian and the role of these codes is how coherent they are with a law and order regime rather than a uh, rule of law regime. Mm. The deep significance of law and order as a as a concept. The second half of the book really concentrates on things that we we recognise as contemporary things that we've been reading about um, in in media today. I wonder if you could explain to us how we got from the colonial state through to the moment of the present, um, and your use of this description of domination without ideology.
1: Thanks, Jodi after independence in 1948 Burma was in a condition of turmoil it was extremely difficult time the country had fought for independence there was a strong nationalist movement and an armed struggle against first against the colonizers uh, in the form of the British then against the Japanese occupiers then again against the British as a, a, in the form of a of political resistance and a determination that independence would come quickly. The country was thrown into turmoil with the assassination of Aung San, the father of uh, Do Aung San Suu Chi, and um, a number of members of his cabinet just be- on the eve of independence. And from the moment of independence was... Um, beset by insurgencies and armed conflicts of a, a huge variety. Despite the turmoil, the juridical uh, apparatus continued to function, and it did so much in the same way as it had in the colonial period, but with increasingly attention to questions of who or what was the citizen and what the rights of the citizen were, so Here we have a distinctive feature of that that period, and one thing that I identify in that period is a, a coupling of, by that period I mean really the decade of the 1950s, the coupling of the procedural rights, which were a feature of the colonial arrangements with substantive rights under the constitution of independent Burma and the articulation of those. We don't have time to go into the details of it, but suffice it to say that the institutional arrangements persisted until the first coup in 1958 and then a second coup in 1962, the second being a definitive coup, the first being one that brought in a caretaker government for a short period the second coup changed arrangements completely. From the beginning, it was clear that the military was not prepared to go along with the status quo. The military dictator, General Ne Win, uh, shut down the superior courts, merged them into a single court, and uh, from the beginning, the superior judiciary was clearly... Um, much diminished. However, there were not other immediate institutional changes. Those occurred over many years. Again, the details of the story are too many to go into now, but suffice it to say that by the early 1970s, 1972, and then again by 1974, when a one party parliament was established, the professional judiciary was completely demolished and a lay judiciary consisting of tribunals that were under the instructions of horizontally arrayed party officers and administrators was put in place. So this rearrangement resulted in a completely different institutional project from what had existed in the colonial and early post-colonial period But as against that, we see the persistence of the codes of criminal law and the continued use of the same kinds of arrangements for arrest and detention and incarceration that we see in earlier periods. So there's an odd juxtaposition. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, Burma is no longer like its South Asian counterparts to the West in as much as the institutional arrangements are completely unlike them. On the other hand, it's not a revolutionary state either, despite the um, junta that came in in 1962 calling itself a revolutionary council. There was no revolution. There was never any uh, wholesale effort, as say in the case of Vietnam, to remove colonial era law and replace it with a revolutionary type, which in Vietnam was imported from the Soviet Union. Rather, we find this strange admixture of colonial era codes uh, dominating alongside some uh, ideological codes from the socialist era and a completely different institutional arrangement. That structure continues until 1988, when under the weight of massive nationwide protests, the one-party government collapses. And just when people think that finally... Uh, They're going to have the opportunity to again participate in democratic political life. Uh, The military steps back in um, through the use of massive bloodshed, puts down the protests, and another junta initiates a new program which lasts until 2010 and the beginning of the changes in the current period, although that government also had some iterations now, that government is faced with a situation in 1988 and into 1989 after it had settled in that it uh, abandoned the one-party arrangements decisively as a complete failure, and yet it didn't have any other ideas, didn't have any other um, uh, specific notion of what it was going to offer to the people of Myanmar other than law and order so from the very beginning we find that the language of the uh, from the very beginning that is of the government that takes over in 88 we find uh, the language of the rule of law re-emerging very strongly that language had subsided considerably in the preceding decades but emerging very emerging very strongly um, as the language of law and order, as rule of law. So, mm-hmm. so, in fact, we have a council which claims to be the Council for Restoration of Law and Order, mm-hmm. stating that its first item on its agenda is to uphold and maintain the rule of law, a, a curious uh, conflation uh, taking place here. But absent of that, really no other ideological statements of any sort. So one of the arguments that I make is that we encounter a new kind of domination without ideology, whereas in the preceding periods all of the um, political groupings that had taken power had some kind of express ideological form, whether it was the utilitarian benthamite form of the colonial powers, on the more liberal democratic form of the post-colonial, immediate post-colonial state, or the um, socialism through a Burmese mode, a Burmese form, after 1962. After 1988, there's really an absence of any ideological um, statements on the part of the junta. What it comes down to is that the junta is concerned to... Uphold the rule of law inverted commas through attention to the practices and instruments of law and order at both the level of institutional arrangements and the uh, level of the discourses the language of the states we see this program being carried out in interesting ways and again We don't have time to discuss it in in detail here, but I'll just mention a couple of key features. One issue was what to do with the judiciary now that the lay courts are finished. And the immediate solution was to turn to the administrators, the judicial officers who occupied positions as bench clerks, as other um, administrators of courts throughout the country, and assign them positions as judges. So overnight, a professional judiciary is reestablished, but It's not a professional judiciary with the habits of a judiciary. It's the judiciary with the habits of uh, an administration. The administrator becomes the adjudicator right across the entirety of the country, and many of those people still occupy their positions today. Secondly, at the level of um, state language, we see that... The the language of law and of juridical practice from earlier periods is hollowed out and bounces around the place in a rather meaningless way. And this also speaks to the absence of... Ideology. So, whereas in earlier periods there was some attention to, say, certain principles, juridical principles that mattered because they spoke to the ideology of the time, in this period after 1988, we have a jumble of socialist era principles, colonial era principles, early post colonial principles, none of which really mean anything or add up to anything much. It's all just a a kind of a, a soup of juridical language uh, floating around, which army officers, for whom it really means nothing anyway, um, come out and they they, they they use it really as a way of explaining what law and order means for them. Consequently, both at the level of the administrator come adjudicator and at the level of the army officer come uh administrator at the level of the junta, we see a move towards law and order ideas, but law and order ideas which are characterized as though they are somehow related to uh, and evocative of and indicative of the rule of law.
0: Thank you for um, spelling that out so clearly for me because it's it's quite a complex history. Um, What you said about This movement from administrators to adjudication, this creation of an instant judiciary, um, that makes so much sense with reference to that really powerful chapter on the practices of citizen complaint and the way in which local officials interact with each other and the efforts of ordinary people, often rural, marginalized populations, to Protect themselves against abuses of power and uh, construct themselves as rights-bearing citizens. And I wondered if you might bring us to this point in your book, which is about a very about the current moment and the way in which there is a, a rule of law radicalism and in this really important use of a sense of rule of law in the hands of very ordinary people.
1: Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, There's a lot in that chapter, and maybe one reason that there's a lot in that chapter is that, in a sense, this was the starting point for the research that led to the book, although it's the last part of the book. One of the things that struck me from early on was how it was that people complained often vociferously and vigorously to institutions and officers who were clearly unsympathetic to their complaints, and nevertheless they persisted in ways that they found um, both remarkable and impressive and powerful. So, I tried to to draw some of that out in the last part of the book, having done all of the heavy lifting in earlier chapters, which isn't to say that the chapter on complaint is is light lifting, but it needs needed to be understood in relation to uh, a lot of the grounds that we've covered already. It may be difficult to speak to all aspects of the chapter. So let me just pick up on one uh, analytical distinction that I make and um, perhaps leave it at that. One of the things that struck me was the manner in which people complained uh, differed considerably, and it's not easy to come up with schemas or taxonomies of complaint when one finds that from from one letter and from one writer to the next, from one complainant to the next, there is a, a great deal of diversity. Nevertheless, uh, there are certain patterns and certain features in the manner in which people complain and here, in particular, I'm interested in complaints against or in relation to state officers, so in a setting where you wouldn't expect that state agencies would be sympathetic to complaints and wouldn't be efficacious in delivering redress for complainants. I drew on an article by Sheila Fitzpatrick on complaint-making in Soviet Russia, in which she makes a distinction which I found helpful, and therefore I tried it out in the Burmese case, between supplicant and citizen. And the supplicant is a person who goes forward making a complaint which is really um, in the lexicon of the state. So it draws upon and mimics and uses that language of the state uh, very heavily, but places the person... in a a subordinate position. So in a sense what that person is doing is adopting the language of law and order, coming forward to an enlightened superior, occupying some office and um, beseeching that superior to provide them with some kind of relief. Very often they're pointing to specific characteristics of themselves or if someone's writing the letter on their behalf, a lawyer or a professional letter writer, then... Uh, that person is doing it. They may be identifying, for instance, that, um, supposing it's a, a young woman who has been molested or raped, then, uh, they may be identifying what are the features of the young woman that makes her worthy of attention by presumably a male superior in 40 or 50 years old who might adopt a paternalistic attitude towards that, um, young victim, the innocence of the person, the vulnerability of the person that makes her deserving of intervention and attention, and the alleged perpetrator deserving of punishment. These are some of the characteristics of letters of supplication.
0: We also highlight the way in which they will adapt state discourse and exalt the state through the state's own discourse.
1: Indeed. Now, that's a tricky aspect of the of the distinction that I'm trying to make, because in fact that happens in both the categories which I've identified: the supplicant and the citizen. The supplicant will do that in a way which, as you say, I think the word you use, exalt, is the correct one. Uh, it will be exaltations without irony. Um, without any adornments or without an attempt to have a subversive message. So let's take that idea and then bring it into conversation with the citizen. The citizen might do the same thing, and here I drew on the work of O'Brien and Lee in China on rightful resistance, and there have been others who have written um, on how uh, state Language is used by people who are complaining against the states in ways that are contrary to the intentions of the authors of the original language, certainly not the, the complainants. The citizen may also use that language, but it comes as a challenge. Right? So the citizen may know that the, the rule of law, as expressed by a military junta, is uh, perverse and problematic conception, but nevertheless they will call on that language and then make claims, make demands for rights based on that language, which goes to an idea of them as being a rights-bearer, a rights-bearer in the sense that they have unalloyed rights that they are bearing with them. Not that they are rights which are subject to the arbitrary decision-making of a superior that require them to come forward on bended knees, but on the contrary, that they are deserving by virtue of them being a citizen, by virtue of them being a a replete rights-bearer, that they are deserving of obtaining redress, of getting justice, of having action taken. And in some cases, and not only in political cases, although it is true that it's sometimes uh, political cases where one sees or would would see this language, in some cases quite aggressively making statements to this effect, almost uh, conveying a message that if justice isn't obtained, after all, given all of this rhetoric about the rule of law and the concerns for uh, protecting the rights and interests of the citizens of the country, then what good is this political arrangement that we have in the country? And uh, another feature of the work by the citizen in this respect is often also to play off one, to get to to more practical aspects, to play off one level of the administration against another. So perhaps to deliver a letter to an administrator at one level which conveys a tone of dissatisfaction and a veiled warning that if that administrator doesn't do something, then they will encounter uh, action being taken at a higher level and very often also copying the letter to superior officers to put that person on notice that the superior officers of that person have been informed that this complaint has been made and that the citizen, in, in this case, expects action to be taken accordingly. Now, one of the issues that emerges obviously with the cases of complaints by citizens especially is that those people expose themselves to risk, especially risk of counter complaints. So um, what happened in especially in ordinary criminal cases, not so much in the political cases where there are other avenues available to officers. But in ordinary criminal cases, very often people who made complaints of these sorts in early years would find that they themselves were charged with criminal offenses by the people that they were complaining against or by others who were acting on behalf of the people they were complaining against. And here we go into the... Uh, tension in the codes between those the criminal code and uh, associated uh, statutes. The tension between those aspects of the codes that speak to certain rule of law principles from earlier periods and those that speak to law and order principles. So there are many sections available in the codes for administrators to use to counter attack under circumstances where they're threatened. Additionally, Uh, Should someone choose to target a judge in speaking to earlier periods rather than the period that we're in now, uh, it was always possible for a judge to counter-attack through use of contempt of courts or other avenues open to them. And the person who was making the complaint might find that they themselves uh, end up being the subject of punishment rather than the person that they were targeting for action. But some complaints of that sort could succeed under certain circumstances, and I discuss cases in the book, we don't have time to go into them here, where complainants do succeed. However, for the most part, the success is of an administrative type. So, for instance, um, Government officials accused of assaulting people and found, in fact, after some kind of internal investigation to have assaulted them or sufficient evidence suggests to suspect, to, to lead their superiors to suspect that it may have happened, uh, may be removed from their positions or may be transferred or demoted. However, uh, the likelihood that a complainant could bring criminal case against one of those administrators and let alone an effectual criminal case was extremely low and in fact that still remains the case today even in the current period of political change uh, partly due to still um, habits which have built up in these institutions over a long period of time and partly also to provisions both in statute and in other instruments that put obstacles in the way of complainants against state officers.
0: And I think also partly because, as you point out in that chapter, partly because these things are happening in distant places and the, the complex relations and the details and the unfolding of the events will ever come to be known in the kinds of ways that you draw together um, in in your chapter, which is such a valuable contribution, I think, to knowledge. Um, yeah. I wish we had more time to talk about the book because it's such a rich study of so much and so much of which is not fully known or understood partly because of the materials that you've worked so hard to access and understand and put on record and make legible to us not just through the text of court cases that have not been studied but also through fleshing out all the relational, contextual, um, political, historical um relationships underpinning all these core cases. Um, your chapter on the 2007 protests and the chapter on corruption are particularly powerful. I'm so glad that Cambridge has brought the paperback out. It's going to make this book so much more accessible. Um, but in closing, I wonder if you could say a little bit about future directions.
1: Thanks, Jodi. And I appreciate you mentioning that um, the paperback has come out. So, I I agree that that uh, will give opportunity for many more readers than has been the case over the last year. Turning to what I'm working on now, one of the chapters in the book which we haven't had time to speak about deals with the phenomenon of what I call in the book judicial torture. Judicial torture insofar as it's torture that refers to the judicial Process that torture that has as its specific instrumentality a concern with judicial outcomes, in particular the obtaining of confession in order to close a criminal case. It was one of the most difficult parts of the book to work on for a host of reasons, partly to do with the subject matter and partly also because I felt that I wasn't able to offer, given the seriousness of the phenomenon, I wasn't able to offer an adequate uh, explanation for what I was observing. I felt that my interpretation, although satisfactory for this book, which had other goals and was oriented towards perhaps a somewhat different set of questions from those that that chapter addresses, I really didn't enable me to do everything that I might have liked to do with that material. Therefore, I decided, um, having completed the book, that the next project I undertake should be a detailed study of torture. And I wanted to extend the study beyond Myanmar. I, I felt it was important to think about this phenomenon comparatively. Did the book, although a single case study, is in a sense a comparative? study. I've tried to set it up in a way that enables comparison, but I wanted to make the next work that I did explicitly comparative. So I have organized a research program which involves a comparative study of torture in Myanmar and Thailand, and hopefully I'll be extending some of the findings from data collection in those two countries to comparison with some South Asian cases. And what I'm really hoping to do with this research is talk back against the dominant literature on torture or talk to it in in different ways. Um, At the one level, we have uh, work on torture done by so many human rights organizations and advocacy groups and others like those with whom I worked previously uh, in all of the nitty-gritty uh, detail. On the other hand, we find a lot of work which is uh, flying at a very high level that is abstracted, that deals with um, scenarios that um, are sometimes described as um, torture scenarios in dreamland, I think as one author put it. I want to try and uh, bring that uh, abstract work on torture into close conversation with work on specific cases out of these two case studies and do it not by asking narrow instrumental questions about does torture work, common question, which is asked by people who are thinking about it as an instrumental question, but rather uh, to ask a political question, which is, uh, what work is torture doing? So to engage with the phenomenon of torture as um, as a political problem and one with deep implications for how we understand the uh, times and places and institutions where it's imbricated. So that's the intention for the next phase of my research. which should take me up to about 2020 and hopefully... I'll have another book on the way around about that time.
0: Well, we're all looking, certainly I'm looking forward to the next book and I'm not at all surprised to hear that you've been awarded the very prestigious Institute for Advanced Studies Fellowship at Princeton to support your research in this field. And on behalf of everyone who cares about these things, very best wishes to you. thanks so much for talking about your practice.
1: Thank you for taking the time to talk with me.
0: I see you the ten of
1: those Monks got it. Hey I get the ten of
0: 18 plus.